difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky. Keith Epps. Tasha Robinson is at the Sundance Film Festival, spending millions on the next Spitfire Grill, but she'll be back at lower altitude soon. Every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. Today, we're looking at documentaries about two dreamers. One, an independent filmmaker from Milwaukee who's determined to make his first feature. The other, an entrepreneur from New York who's trying to stage the most exclusive high-end music festival the world has ever seen. Two inspiring tales of triumph over adversity. Right, Genevieve? Well, they definitely deliver in the adversity department. Uh, Not so much in the triumph department. But they're inspiring, right? Noble failures? mixed bag there too i'm afraid uh one of them is still nurturing the dream 20 years later the other one is currently spending six years in federal prison okay so what do they have in common we'll save that question for connections but mark borchardt and billy mcfarland are two unforgettable characters profiled by director chris smith an independent filmmaker who's fascinated by ambitious eccentrics borchardt is the hero of smith's 1999 breakthrough film american movie which was supposed to be about Burchard's efforts to make a personal film called Northwestern, but it's actually about him finishing a horror short called Coven. Uh, Genevieve, please. It's pronounced Coven. Rhymes with oven, as in, <laughs> I took the cookies out of the oven. Go ahead. Thank you. Well, Smith's new film is the Netflix documentary Fire, one of two competing documentaries about Fire Festival, a notoriously botched attempt to stage a luxury music festival on a beach in the Bahamas. The other, called Fire Fraud, is on Hulu. At the center of Fire is founder Billy McFarland, who partnered with the rapper Ja Rule to offer well-to-do millennials the opportunity to party with models in paradise and take in the music of Major Lazer, Blink-182, Migos, and other acts. Needless to say, the festival fell well short of expectations. So this week, we'll kick off our Chris Smith pairing with American Movie, a documentary about the thrilling and humbling and occasionally stupefying process of making a film. Then next week, we'll bring in Fire and talk about all the things the two films have in common. Keith, I've given you one line in this script. Let's hear it. It's all right. It's okay. There's something to live for. Jesus told me so. Wow. First take. Cut. Print. That's a wrap. His whole life is making this one film. You, you have two hours tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and be an extra in a film? You get your name on the credits, man, as a producer. And of course, there'll be a whole crowd of people here, so we got to make like a line where people can't go, have a hell of a lot of assistant directors saying, hey, hey, could you step back like five feet? I think my mom's going to have to end up going out in the woods. I have my shopping to do. Okay, you got to spread apart that way. All of the extras have just fell through, except for Mike Shank right there. We used to uh, do a lot of partying together, but I don't party anymore. <laughs> hey, Mike, make sure everyone has brown gloves. Does everyone have brown gloves? No, dude, dude, dude. I'm broke, man. I gotta get gas tomorrow. And dude's talking about making a feature film. Uh, the name of the film is Coven. Coven, Coven. Uh, Coven, uh, that's the proper pronunciation. No, no, Coven sounds like oven, man, and that's just, it doesn't work. She wants to be in your film, Bill. Oh, my gosh. You get your three grand back. It's the first line of the film, man. It's got to be on the money. It's all right, uh... 
Okay, I believe we can do this. The first question we usually ask at the beginning of each Next Picture Show pairing is, what is your history with the older movie? How did it play when you first encountered it? And how does it play now? But I'm going to address that question now about American movie, because I think when you see the film does affect your understanding of it. And for me, it's personal. American movie premiered almost exactly 20 years ago at the Sundance Film Festival. And I premiered as a full-time film critic about six months after that, with a much different perspective on my chosen field that I have now. As a young adult, it's easy to see American movie as the inspiring story of a filmmaker who's chasing his dream and simply won't take no for an answer. Mark Borchardt is the ultimate outsider, a blue-collar guy from Milwaukee who's determined not to lead an ordinary life. Perhaps the most comparable path to success for Borchardt would be George Romero, a Pittsburgh native who made a name for himself with the ultra-low-budget black-and-white zombie film Night of the Living Dead. As it happens, Borchardt is a huge George Romero fan, having made Romero-inspired horror shorts on Super 8mm with titles like The More the Scarier and The More the Scarier 3. And as American Movie opens, Borchardt is three years into making Coven, a black-and-white shocker that's still an edit and a few reshoots away from being finished. The film is ostensibly about the making of Borchardt's first feature film, Northwestern, a production that he's determined to get off the ground, despite not having a finished script or anywhere near the resources to make it happen. Outside of a few production meetings, however, we never see a single frame of Northwestern get shot. In fact, we never even find out what it's about. What filmmaking we do get to see are the reshoots on Coven, which Borchardt hopes will attract enough attention and VHS sales to get him the money he needs for his magnum opus. In the meantime, he's working odd jobs as a newspaper delivery man and as a janitor at a cemetery, hanging out with his buddy Mike Shank, drinking a lot, and sorting through second and third notices on bills that are piling up. Hollywood is still a steep climb away. And yet if the title weren't already taken by another great making of documentary, American movie could be called Burden of Dreams. As a middle-aged person watching the film, I found myself more sensitive to the practical consequences of Borchardt's ambitions. He's a father of young children. What's his relationship with them? How well is he supporting them? What burden are they accepting on his behalf? He's roped in actors and crew members with his pitch, but what do his broken promises mean for them? And how are we to take his relationship with Uncle Bill? On the one hand, he seems to be the only person genuinely caring enough to withstand Bill's surliness and look after him on occasion, even giving him a bath. On the other, Bill is the one solid source of money he could tap, and he's aggressive about doing so. Is he a good nephew, or is he just trying to separate a demented old man from his nest egg? These are complicated questions, and they reveal American movie to be about so much more than a film about filmmaking, though it's often funny as hell in that respect. It's about the calculations all of us make as adults between pursuing our dreams and acknowledging our responsibilities. Mark Borchardt is an extreme case in that he's willing to dodge or deny reality in the pursuit of greatness. When I first saw an American movie in 1999, I was fortunate enough to have achieved a dream that I had carried since I was 16 years old and working in a movie theater. 20 years later, I'm still more or less on the same track, but with a much more practical sense of what the job is and what larger responsibilities I have to those closest to me. Because whatever dreams I've had and have, they're not entirely my own. This is ridiculous. We started May 94, man. We've got every F-stop known to man in the film. <laughs> and right now, we got to take action, man. we got to go out to that field, put those scarecrows in on a killer slant. You know, they've been there for years. The farm's burnt down. It's going to be the opening shots for Coven, you know? And uh, what is Coven? Coven's a 35-minute direct-market thriller film shot on 16-millimeter black-and-white reversal. Uh, it's uh, an alcoholic man compelled to go to this group meeting by his one and only friend left, but they're not that helpful to group, you know. 
You know about the group thing? Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's what we're doing a film on. Coven, man. We got to get this sucker done, though. Seriously. Last night, man, I was so drunk, I was calling Morocco, man. Calling, trying to get to the Hotel Hilton at Tangiers in Casablanca, man. That's, I mean, that's, that's pathetic, man. Is that what you want to do with your life? Suck down peppermint schnapps and try to call Morocco at 2 in the morning? That's senseless. But that's what happens, man. Okay, so you've heard me talk about this question. Um, so how did this movie play for you when you saw it, and how does it play for you now? I played great then and it plays great now. And while I've always been of, of the mind that the criticism was lobbied as it's, it's sort of exploiting Borchardt and making fun of him, but I really never thought that then, and I think even less so now. It plays yeah. very even-handed to me. And, I mean, full disclosure, I interviewed Chris Smith, and, and I kind of got to know him a little bit at the time, and, and his take was always that he was a filmmaker trying to figure out how to do what he was doing, and he was just making another documentary about another filmmaker in the same situation. Obviously, you know when you find a colorful character who's going to make for an interesting film, but I think there's a certain amount of respect and interest and concern to the filmmaking that never plays as condescending to me. Yeah, I've seen this movie before, but it was less than 10 years ago. It was while I was at the AV Club, and I think I have probably less of a personal connection to this film than both of you do for various reasons. But like Keith, I liked it then and I liked it now. Borchardt is just very charismatic in a very specific way, and I think that is what keeps it from feeling exploitative like you say Keith he's just like the kind of character that pulls you into his orbit whether you like actually like him or not or or want to hang out with him like he's he's just like such a curiosity of a person which makes for a very compelling documentary that is also really sad like I I think you were kind of circling this a a little bit in your keynote Scott but you know I definitely came away from it this time feeling a lot sadder (laughs) than I remember Mm -hmm. the, the first time when I think I maybe approached it a little more, you know, glibly or snidely is, you know, look at this weirdo kind of a almost Tommy Wiseau type figure, you Mm -hmm. know, but kind of looking at it now in the context of his family and the people around him and his uh, adult obligations. And Mike Shank, who is just such a interesting counterpoint to everything that is uh, going on with with Mark here. It's hard to come away from it. Feel like I feel sad, not because uh, Mark still hasn't gotten to make Northwestern. I just like I feel sad that I don't want to say I feel sad that this is his life because that's condescending. But just like I feel bad about like all the circumstances that are in this movie. Yeah, I mean, when he's battling against the forces that would face even right. someone of immense talent um, working from the Midwest, you yeah. know. And, or and someone who wasn't trying to make a movie. Like, yeah. that's kind of what I mean is like independent of the movie making aspect and him like knocking to realize his dream. Just like there's so much in his life that is like relatable on a just sort of a human level, like the financial struggles, the relationship difficulties, the family tension and strife. You know, there, mm-hmm. there's a lot there that is very recognizable on a human level. The movie almost seems more of a, a frame around all of that to me. Yeah. And I think to kind of continue what Scott was saying is as you get older, even if you're living a happy life you realize that life is after a certain point it's, it's doors closing and opportunity is just not being there mm-hmm. and and you know he's high early 30s and yeah like right right around 31 so yeah it, it really is sort of like he the moment of realization that it may be too late for him you know and and he doesn't and have that realization he doesn't though. have that realization or he's denying it in he denial through the entire movie that that, that it's not going to happen and and yeah and i think you're i think you're right though also that, that i mean you know not to get too autobiographical but you know it's easy to see him it's like oh that's kind of funny that he's also a dad and he's trying to do all this and now it's like wait 
be a dad, <laughs> you know, to, you yeah. know, take, one of the, um, um, yeah, that's more important than your movie. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I found interesting about the, uh, this film watching at this time was how long uh, Smith and I guess it, this is a good time to also credit Sarah Price, who is his collaborator. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's, there, it's credited no, as a film by uh, yeah. Chris Smith and Sarah. Price. Yeah, there's no actual directorial credit. It's just a film by the two of them. But anyway, I find it very interesting that they choose to wait so long to introduce the fact that he has mm-hmm. has children. Mm-hmm. You know, you, like, you really you spend a lot more time with his obsession with this film, and then it's like all of a sudden, oh, and also there's kids. I think it's very good at throughout the film introducing like new wrinkles like that mm-hmm. too. Yep. Um, also, kind of the strife with his parents, that's also kind of comes later. So that's kind of what I mean about the making a movie element seeming more like a framing device within this like portrait of a kind of ordinary life in a lot of ways. Well, let me suggest another motive, too, on Christmas part is that all of these elements are on the periphery because they are on the periphery of Borchardt's right. life, too. Like, he is not minding... Uh, these elements that are would be very central. I mean, being a father of all these children would be pretty central to your experience as a person, usually, uh, if you're not trying to chase a stream as, as he is. And so you have some very important elements that he's kind of pushing off to the side or denying. Uh, and I think the film does a nice job of reflecting that because I think, if you, I think there's another film you could make that would just be about all the areas of his life that are going untended. But we don't get that movie. We get Amer- we get this one, which is great. And so you can kind of then you can kind of then go back to it and, and think about oh, what's being forgotten here as he's pursuing the dream. But I think I think there's the other thing about this this film. It's so, and I guess this is where it gets inspiring or semi inspiring. Is is that I think everybody does have. People have dreams. I mean, people do want to um, you know, achieve something grand with their life. Uh, you know, even if their other lives or younger lives they're responsible for. It's just to actually table that dream as I mean, as as the entire universe is telling Mark Borchardt to do. It, you know, it's a, it's a painful thing to do, and for him to kind of carry on despite that is heroic in its way. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I personally related to also is as as a Midwesterner. And as someone who doesn't necessarily have a lot of connections, you know, I never really wanted to make a movie. I was always kind of happier doing this. But even like writing about movies just seemed like an impossible mm-hmm. thing. That's something that someone from where I came from, nobody else interested around me in, in culture writing or culture in general. A lot of people aren't just not interested in culture in general where I grew up. Uh, it was, you know, things were seemed out of reach. And, and I, I found that very relatable to, to him. I, I don't know that he was, you know, the next Spielberg denied or anything, but he never really got a chance to find out for himself. Well, there's also the matter of scale. I mean, I don't really get the sense that Mark Borchardt like, is dying to jet off to Hollywood to become, you know, the next Spielberg. He just, mm-hmm. he wants to make a movie. Like, we, there's all this, like, wonderful footage of, you know, the Super 8 millimeter films he made just, like, driving around with his buddies, mm-hmm. you know, and causing mayhem that teenagers do, you know. And his desire to make a movie seems very pure in a lot of ways like he just wants it to be out there you know Mm -hmm. he wants to sell enough vhs copies to make uh, another movie it's a somewhat modest ambition within the very large scope that making any movie is but within movie making generally i think what he wants to do is fairly modest you know the the other point i think about him too is that he isn't tommy was oh he he's not I mean, obviously, he he has limitations to his talent, but and to his finances, and his finances. But <laughs> he's got an eye. He he's film literate. He knows certainly knows technically what he's doing. He's not that bad a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. 
and it brings me to that again to that point about uh, at the time where critics were sort of complaining that the film was being kind of descending towards him. It's like if you've ever been on a low budget shoot or a student production or a production of the scale that of of Borchardt's, I mean the, this kind of <laughs> this kind of DIY craziness is the norm. It's like you know it's just it's part of the process of learning and. I think everyone is having fun with that. The film is laughing with it, and it should. I mean, can you imagine? Like, can you imagine like getting all of that footage of the cabinet uh, or the, ca- oh the, the cabinet scene, and then deciding, yeah, you know, if I put it in there, people think I'm think. I mean, that's, that's gold. That's solid mm-hmm. gold. You're you're putting that in the movie if the, you're, unless you're a crazy person. I, the the whole condescension thing, just to dwell on it a, a little longer, it reminds me that when we did Roger and Me for our, our Michael Moore pairing, that also came up then is mm-hmm. whether he was being condescending toward the, the rabbit lady or you know anyone else in flint and i kind of wonder if the whole like condescension criticism is maybe just coming from a place of elitism to begin with you know mm-hmm. it's like dated like, maybe maybe maybe, it's just, maybe it's just it was a complaint that people had it's something people like to complain about at the time and now it seems yeah. like what were people talking about yeah that could be it too but yeah. non-midwestern um, folk that's it that's the problem <laughs> well the thing well in in both the case of roger and me and and here it's filmmakers who are like filming in in their own space mm-hmm. in their own world you know like he, chris smith wasn't really an outsider you know like coming into this uh, into this world and michael moore was returning to his hometown you know like I think there has to be like an exploitative element to claim condescension that I don't think either of these films that I don't see in either of these films. To circle back to a point that Keith made earlier, Chris Smith wasn't anything at this point. He, right. he you know, right. he had the way this film came together was that he was at an editing bay at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, cutting together his first movie called American Job. Uh, and so, and that's when he kind of, you know, Borchardt was working on his film and there was all sorts of, you know, Iraq, you know, I don't think Borchardt can go anywhere without there being a certain amount of noise. <laughs> Him and his four kids ta- tagging along, <laughs> sleeping in the editing bay. Exactly, <laughs> right. And so there's, there's plenty of that. And, and But Chris Smith at that point was a Midwesterner from, from Okemos, Michigan, who traveled around and lived in different places, uh, who, who would scrape together a very small budget and asked a lot of favors to get you know, American Job, which is a fantastic film, mm-hmm. off the ground, but it wasn't off the ground yet. And f- and when he and when he finished cutting American Job, it didn't. Uh, you know, it got rejected from Sundance. It got rejected from a bunch of festivals before it finally kind of found um, a couple of people who recognized how good it was, and, and then it then it found it found its way out. So it's not available anywhere. It's now. not. It's not. It's really good. It is really good. I, I, it's one I hope like Christmas starting to work a lot more now, mm-hmm. and ho- maybe. Maybe that will inspire American Job to come out. I think it was like, was it a special feature on the American movie DVD? No. That would have no, been pretty special because that, that movie so. almost is nearly as good as American movie, in my opinion. But yeah, but, um, there's a great scene. I, I, I've spent a summer working uh, light, light industrial work, which is. Uh, which, I was thinking of you watching the scene. Yeah. Before. And there's a scene there. I worked at various machine presses, that kind of thing. But um, plastic at a plastic box factory, worst of all. But you kind of just have to you're, adjust your body to the rhythms of the machine. You're just you're like the part they could not automate is what you are. So like you take the pla- in my in my case, you had to take the plastic boxes out and like shave off the sides but there's equivalent the, the hero of that movie has an equivalent job and it's like you know in the time it takes for the machine to spit out whatever it is he's working on that time's your own and he's like you can read a you can read a book or whatever so this scene of him like trying to read a novel in like 30 seconds at a time in, in like his downtime while it, anyway, it, it's definitely you know uh, like like american movie it benefits from someone 
knowing what he's talking about, you know, and, and knowing the world he's trying to depict. And knowing labor. Yes. Which is a part of this movie, too, um, and which, which is, we'll get to later, is a part of Fire. I mean, like, like this is about jobs that have to be done. I mean, you, you get plenty of footage of Borchardt working a newspaper route or, you know, <laughs> working at the cemetery. Taking down 1,400 American flags. <laughs> <laughs> Taking down all those flags. Yeah, so, so I mean, that that is, you know, he has to, you know, scrape at these low-wage jobs to put together what money he can. I mean, just to, just to, he's swimming in debt, maybe to swim in debt a little bit less. An American job is all about that. It's all about minimum wage jobs that this guy goes from one to another. I mean, there's a scene with the box factory. It's like it's a, I think it is a box factory. I forget what it was. But, but, but the scene where he, he breaks the machine, he just walks off. Yeah. He comes in the next day and, and he has to meet with the boss. And the boss has him sit in his chair. Did, did you remember this? The boss has him yeah. sit in his chair and tell him what he'd do in his situation. It's like, well, yeah. I guess I have to let you go. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you're on your way uh, well, um, well but, speaking of movies that people can't see uh, yes <laughs> um have either of you seen any more of coven than what appears yeah in it's on the, it's movie? on the dvd yeah and it's i think it's interesting what you see in the movie is actually really uh, the shots you see in american movie are actually really promising looking I mean, yeah like uh, is, is that the, is what we see it seems like we're seeing the opening credits yeah, and then it kind of skips around when i did this but yeah. but yeah and it's it's not great but it's not I mean, it's like a lot of. It looks other... like a really good student film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a lot of other low budget horror films from the time. Like I can see him, you know, it's kind of thing you maybe you know hardcore horror fans would buy on on VHS and from back of Fangoria or, or wherever he's trying yeah, to sell. Yeah, well, 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 this is this seems to be like operating in your milieu or what used to be your milieu. <laughs> like, like is his plan to sell three hundred VHS copies of Coven at all realistic? I mean, probably not. Like quality aside, know? like uh, like some is something like at that scale going well, to sell. 3,000 VHS copies. If I remember correctly, the American movie website kept track of how many VHS copies he sold. And like even with the publicity of the film itself, I don't think they were close to meeting, meeting he, he was on I, I watched because I, I did this whole feature on Chris Smith and and so I watched I watched ended up watching there were three appearances by Mark Borchardt on Letterman. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of this funny character that Letterman liked to bring on and well, make condescend to exactly yeah. now there, there, there you might have an argument but there was a thing where he uh i think he, i think i mean this obviously the publicity for this film did gave coven sales a huge boost they would not otherwise have yeah had. but not i don't know if it, even with that i'm not sure they met Made their enough goals, okay uh, but, but i think i think i agree with keith in terms of the quality of the film it's not a great movie but it but it's not terrible you know? is it promising though i wouldn't necessarily even go that far yeah. but it, but it's not it's not garbage it's not yeah. like Again, it's not Tommy Wiseau. I mean, this is somebody who has a sensibility and has an eye, but is not a hugely not hugely sophisticated a filmmaker either. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's I I don't want to like overdo the comparison to Tommy Wiseau, but like they are kind of interesting analogous figures working at more or less the same time. Um, so perhaps it's inevitable. But like Borchardt seems like he at least has a pretty good handle on the craft of filmmaking and Mm -hmm. if not necessarily the ability to do the work an awareness of the work that needs to be done but perhaps not the level of vision or ambition uh in terms of the actual content of his film that a madman like tommy was so much money too i mean like yeah exactly i mean that's the difference right or or training too someone who didn't necessarily get the chance to learn the skills he's kind of i'm sure he picked them up on his own and for sure read all those books that he's got in his room too yeah every f-stop known to man in this film (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, he knows about f-stop. There's no yeah. way Tommy Wiseau knows a damn thing about f-stop or how to work, you know, in an editing bay and cut. I mean, he was cutting on film, so that's that's a, a, a huge that's a skill. Um, but what I, one of the things I wanted to get to before we because we were still deep into this, I wanted to talk about the relationships in the film because there are so many memorable characters, two in particular. Uh, Mike Shank and uh, Uncle Bill. Uh, so maybe we break them down one by one. What, what do you make of these relationships? Shank's such a mystery, right? I'm... Well, I feel like both relationships are really tied up in a lot of ways, not solely, but in a lot of ways with Mark's relationship with alcohol and partying. Mm. One of the things that I had either missed before or forgotten is the scenes of Mark like feeding Bill alcohol, getting him drunk, and that is like, He's clearly not at a stage in his life where that is at all beneficial to him. (laughs) And with Mike Shank, he seems to have a very, Mark seems to have a very uneasy relationship with Mike's sort of newfound sobriety, such as it is, you know, and Mm. there's at the premiere, there's that weird moment where he's like on stage thanking people and he says something like, yeah, don't drink, drinking's bad to, to Mike. He just like calls him out and makes some sort of weird comment about drinking and that complicated those relationships to me in a really interesting way. And because Mark's drinking, partying, whatever you want to call it, is sort of like a foundational aspect of a lot of this movie. Like, I mean, several people say in the movie that he has some sort of problem and we see him drinking while he's filming and stuff. You know, he's perhaps functional, but it's, you know, maybe a bigger part of his life than it needs to be. And uh, in these two cases, maybe a little bigger part of his relationships than it needs to be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a scene in here on um, Super Bowl Sunday where it's, He's mm-hmm. quite quite messy. That's so ugly. Yeah. That, that's that's a bottoming out scene. And, and and I think that whole monologue about not working in a factory. It's like sad, but it's like that's you know there's kind of sending there too that that he thinks he's he's better than the working class people around him. You know, and mm-hmm. it's it's uh it's a that's rough that's rough scene to watch. You know? Yeah, no, it's it's real. I mean, I I you know in terms of just the way that dynamic plays out, though. I mean, Borchardt, maybe this is true of real life, but also on screen is just. You, you know, you have you have uh, Borchardt who is who who does all the talking, and you have uh, Shank who is mm-hmm. who's passive and and kind of this pleasant presence that he like that. Except for that scene where he's talking about his acid slash PCP <laughs> uh, overdose, whatever. Like that is a wild monologue, man. Oh, that's right. Okay. I have more stories like that. <laughs> yeah, too. I got more. Stories. <laughs> Oh my god! The big old, like, totally benign smile on his face. Uh, oh, I love I love the score that he does for the yeah. film too. That works out so well. Yeah, that's just that's so smart though to incorporate that. It just you know really just woven into the fabric of the movie. Even if it sounds music. like Sabbath. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, but of course, maybe a more troubled relationship is is that relationship to Uncle Bill. Yeah. Uh, because I think you, there's there is argument that you could make. That Mark is Uncle Bill's is the only one who really is looking after Uncle Bill and cares for cares about Uncle Bill. But is he doing a very good job? Maybe not that good it's, a it's job. It's fully but... monitored. <laughs> yeah. Or what it was, it was the phrase he uses. It's uh, uh, well, when he was in the bath. Yeah, it's yeah, fully monitored. Yeah, he's doing the monitoring. Well, well I am. even just like Uncle Bill's trailer, like yeah, that, like you know, he's a hoarder. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. I am only willing to extend Borchardt a certain <laughs> amount of uh, leeway in terms of the the care he provides uncle bill because i am of the opinion that it's not necessarily coming from a pure-hearted place and the sort of half-heartedness with which he uh he does his caregiving reflects that 
mean, but even like giving him a bath, I mean, that he doesn't do that perfectly. They're also both wasted when it happens. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Though, I mean, that's, but that's totally not a, schnapps, you know, yep. <laughs> giving, giving, giving an old, giving an old man a bath is. An old man with a gnarly toenail. <laughs> is not, well, that's not somebody, not something that you would necessarily want to do. Uh, and he's, he's out there doing it. And I think there's a, they seem to enjoy each other. And I mean, Bill likes getting the attention that he gets from Mark. And he seems to be at least semi-aware of uh, Mark's ulterior motives, too. Uh, and yeah. likes to shoot him down on occasion. I don't know. I mean, you, you, so you're th- you're leading pretty heavily towards this yeah. is an exploitative. Uh, um, well, it, I mean, it's so hard to say because Uncle Bill is clearly, you know, mentally deteriorating over the course of of this film. You know, mm-hmm. and I one of our last scenes with him. I mean, there's several scenes where he, you know. The subtitles just go like gibberish, you, you mm. know, or he's sing-songing, you know, he's not fully engaging in, in conversations at this point. But like there's a scene where, you know, Mark's just yammering about something or other with the film and and Uncle Bill's just like, is it time to eat? It's, it's, you know, it's 4.30, is it time to eat? You know, you know, and they're, they're just, to me, he seems not really interested in anything that Mark is doing with the movie as much as he is and just like having someone anyone around Mm -hmm. i i don't particularly see a lot of affection toward mark coming from him but he did leave him a big chunk of cash to to finish the movie yeah or to make start the movie (laughs) or something and and i do and i do wonder at what point bill like made that will and, and what awareness mark had that he had this money coming to him you know, because Bill died very shortly after this movie wraps, like a matter of a couple months, I think, mm-hmm. you know. So presumably he already had a, a will in place. Although who, who knows, maybe it was just a scrap of paper in his tra- trailer. I mean, he, you know, but... take, he does literally take Uncle Bill to the bank. That's true. Put yeah. Up account, so yeah. So uh, there, there, is a, there is a strong effort to, to uh, separate him from his money. Uh, you have, you have the same mind on uh, Uncle Bill. Keith, yeah, or? I mean it, it's. I think the lines can get blurry. Maybe there's some real fondness there too. I think, but whatever fondness is also kind of tied into the fact that he he has the money to not fund it, I guess, but at least uh, help it along. I take it as genuine. I, I do. I mean, yeah. I, I I think it's right in the in the middle there. It's very I mean, optimistic I, of you, Scott. I just I think there, no, but I think you know the, so, these these scenes between between him and Uncle Bill. There's a there's. He jokes around, and it's you know I think they enjoy each other. I mean, there's I, more warmth. He gets more warmth from, from Uncle Bill than he does from his brothers. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, that one. Uh, well, or at least dad. one of his brothers is absolutely tortures yeah. him in those interview sequences. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, that, that's a whole interesting aspect too. His parents and their separation, uh, which isn't dealt with too much, but uh, you know his his mother kind of going out on shoots with him and mm-hmm. stuff and filming by the camera. Another great bit with with her with her <laughs> shooting framing. shooting framing him. Uh, <laughs> that's that's that is wonderful wonderful stuff. So th- that is actually maybe the moment I like Mark the most in this movie, mm-hmm. um, just because like you you can feel the frustration coming off him, but also just the desire to to do this to make this happen. But it's like tempered with like he's talking to his mom, you know, and he he does you know have a certain amount of uh, respect for his mom uh, arguably not enough but that's another conversation but just like watching him in that frame just having his will to do this like sucked out of him but just like holding on he's like I'm just i'm gonna get through this i'm gonna do it i'm not gonna yell at my mom and then we're gonna get the shot it just it feels like the best expression of 
the Mark Borchardt character to me. I, mean, I think he loves them. I mean, I think he loves his mom and he loves Mike Shank and he loves Uncle Bill and mm-hmm. and and that comes through in their rapport on occasion uh, or often even in some cases. If Mark Borchardt were an, an intolerable person to be around, then none, none of what he even accomplishes would have been possible because everyone is drawn in by him and he has that charisma and he jokes around a lot and he's, uh, you know, he enjoys people uh, and it's just, he's not a monster. That one after... I, I was going to say... The, the, one, the one who's like... Well, I, I usually have to give like sort of a hard out so yeah. I can get out at a specific time, but I know this is really important to him, so I kind of try to balance those two things. And, that, and that's the guy who got his head smashed through a yeah, cabinet over yeah. and over again, right? <laughs> I mean, like, like clearly there has to be something to Mark Borchardt to inspire that sort of devotion. Filmmaking, you know? that's, yeah. why, that's what it is. Um, so many memorable scenes and set pieces in this, this film I would like to hear from from mm-hmm. you all what your favorite moment is in the American movie I think this one thing I noticed this time just like a little shot where he is vacuuming the mausoleum and he just kind of gets the cord caught around one of the flowers and kind of has to like a whip it off and just like this little moment that they throw in there but uh, but it's it's sort of a kind of telling of, of his existence at that time too but, but in terms of the big scenes i'm always a sucker for for you know in documentary or narrative film of the scene that's just not working and it's going uncle bill saying mm-hmm. that line over and over mm-hmm. again <laughs> yeah. with increasing resentment and and when you see when you see that moment in the actual premiere of the film it's like yeah. well okay they got an okay they probably got the best line reading they could out of him you know yeah no i was really happy that they opted to show us the the end result of that because i i think that is the the standout scene mm-hmm. or at least in contention for it um and it would have uh, been cruel to die you know seeing what it what it what actually came of it yeah. so that was gonna be my pick too but uh as for a small moment it's it's at the beginning when he's like going through his stack of bills and like the the kicker of it is kick the ass i got a mastercard (laughs) (laughs) somebody gave me a mastercard and i also like uh mike shank and the other guy i forget his name uh explaining yeah or it was ken yeah Yeah. explaining what happened to the flyers like or just like attempting to hang up the flyers like it takes like two of them to scotch tape a flyer in the middle of a giant plate glass window yeah it's it's amusing to me and for as much as we establish that you know he's he's a competent-ish filmmaker i don't know that you actually need to drag someone through puddles to get the sound of someone being dragged through puddles you can probably (laughs) find a way to fake that Uh, (sighs) So those filmmaking scenes are so good. Like you saying, dude, trying to record sound where there are no birds, like yeah. no, no sound whatsoever. That's 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 beautiful stuff. And I and I really like the scene of uh, of him and, and Mike Shank uh, framed in in front of the in front of the junkyard and him talking about. Uh, you know, is call this him Morocco. You, is it, yeah, is this what you want to do with your life? Suck down peppermint, peppermint schnapps and call Morocco at two two in the morning. That's. That's good. That's wonderful, yeah. wonderful stuff. But uh, I mean, the cabinet scene to me is just, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, this go, to go with the obvious, I mean, that is a that is a wonderful sequence. And again, and again, as I s- said before, I mean, it, it is not, you know, I mean, they don't have a special effects crew, you know, they don't have a breakaway cupboard or anything. And so, so what they're doing, it's not not stupid, <laughs> but it's not as dumb as it seems. It's just like, okay, we're going to put scores in this thing and he's going to hit it with his head and it's going to, and it's going to break and have the effect it's going to have. But, uh, and at least he apologized. 
At least he was like, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry <laughs> you had to do that. He's like, oh, no, no. <laughs> he tries to punch it and he can't get his fist through. Oh, that's that's good. That's filmmaking, you know? I mean, that is uh, whether you're, you know, Werner Herzog or Mark Borchardt. I mean, wh- who knows if uh, Borchardt had Herzog's resources? Who knows what have, would have happened in that career? <laughs> uh, but, uh, he could we'll- have a documentary on Netflix by now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll talk more about American Moving Connection with Christmas latest film, Fire, next week. Uh, But for now, we'll move on to feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Usually our feedback is related to one pairing or another, but we do ask for anything else in the world of film, too. So we're excited when we get something more random. Like this one from Adam, who wants to pull back the curtain on our pairing process. Keith? Adam writes, Hey, Next Picture Gang. At the start of every year, I like to set a movie-based resolution to undertake. Last year, I tried to watch every Best Picture winner in chronological order. I didn't quite finish it, but maybe I'll go back to it one day if someone tells me I've really learned something from Driving Miss Daisy. (laughs) For 2019, I figured it would be a good time to go through the Dissolve's Movie of the Week list. That got me thinking about the process, always a favorite topic of mine to think about, of how you went about picking movies to write about and discuss for that site, and how it's similar to different from the the behind-the-scenes discussions you have picking movies for the podcast. Well, hmm. well. F- first of all, uh, I, disclaimer, because you know we do have some listeners who came to us post the yeah, dissolve. That's so true. The, the, the dissolve was the the movie site that uh, we all ran for two glorious years, and we had a movie of the week feature where we would just pick a, a movie and do several pieces on it, and that is the format that inspired the next picture show to a certain extent. So, um, but to the point of this question, I mean, the obvious difference is that we were only picking one movie for movie of the week back at the dissolve and we for the most part did not give too much consideration to contemporary reference points you know like our our first one was what repo man i I think or something just because we you know so with movie of the week and it was frequently a lot more just because you know Mm -hmm. we, we occasionally did like theme months or stuff like that or you know, inspired by something that was coming out. But for the most part, it was just a movie that one of us wanted to, to write about. So we thought we can go deep with. Yeah, I think yeah. I picked Repo Man because I wanted to do something punk because yeah. we were going to be, we were going to have that uh, independent attitude. Yep. We, yep. Did. we did. We, we did. Yeah. It worked out um, great for us. Well, well, <laughs> for a little way. while. For a little um, but, um, but yeah, I think it was more a matter of, we didn't do a lot of shooting down, but I think we tried to i think we were a little more esoteric early on i think after a while we realized we should probably give you know maybe not the most obscure things in the world <laughs> like you know I, I love that we did uh, um a moment of innocence by Mohsen Mahmoudov uh, um but yeah i think we we didn't necessarily pick up readers <laughs> that way um <laughs> it's, a ba- had, it's a balance yeah. though i know exactly uh, we had the process really was there was a rotation right mm-hmm. uh, and so we would say hey it's your you're up, you're up to write the keynote for yeah. Uh, for the week, and and so what do you, what what are some films that you're thinking about, and then then that would be the process. So it would really it was individually 
based. Then we also would maybe think about the secondary pieces that we'd be writing along with the main piece and, and whether uh, and, and how to come together on, on all that. Um, I mean, there was times we broke off into A teams and B teams so we could do two weeks at once and like one one <laughs> team tackled oh, yeah. one film and the other team tackled the other. Then we had it all in the back and that was very efficient. It was good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and similar to uh, how it is uh, with the next picture show, I very rarely took took point on, on any movies of the week because I was dealing with behind the scenes stuff and it was harder for, for me to do it, which is... Also, the case. You did some. With the, I did Clueless. Mm-hmm. I, my, my, that was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, that might have. No, I think I did Pinocchio too. But uh, right. my my point being is that uh, movie of the week was the selections were made by who, like he said, whoever was up in the rotation, and we maintain that a little bit here. You know, we take into account who is up in the host rotation mm-hmm. and sort of defer to them uh, a little more. But it is a much more collective uh, process i think because it involves a fair amount of commitment Mm -hmm. for um not huge profits (laughs) for any of us (laughs) so we we should all be enjoying you know we should all at least enjoy the process um yeah well it's also of course with this always pegged to the new film always having to think about what's the new film that we should be talking about and then we have to think about what we do before that uh, that was before that so uh so that that's different and, and we were remarkably arbitrary about what we would choose at for movie of the week we, we you know i mean sometimes we would have theme theme months or um you know if it was a sum, summer or something we do like a blockbuster month or something like mm-hmm. that but um we were but, in the middle of man versus nature month when uh yeah i know mm-hmm. we were supposed to do a, a back and forth on that and I, I, I think i still have the draft of our grizzly man uh <sighs> forum some, somewhere well, my keynote's up up there if you want to read it. We got that far. I, but I, 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 I never had to write my Into the Wild keynote. That was that was going to be the next oh, one. Okay. So. And I, and I, I never uh, finished my Tangerine review. I only wrote, only wrote one paragraph and then the next fell. Um, but, uh, that's well, so this got depressing. So depressing. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Adam. Good movie, though. Yeah. yeah seriously, thanks, Adam. Scott, Scott's review is... Good movie, yeah, good one. Well, there, and and, uh, and I and I really want to just for the, just to make one last point. This was a this was a a site where people got where a lot of people got paid and was expected to make a profit, and we did a moment of innocence. I just want to make sure that yeah. you're all aware of 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 uh, of the fact that we you know were rebellious or that or follow our instincts. I should say I should say rebellious, but we followed our instincts and and tried to do a lot of things like that that wouldn't you wouldn't weren't chasing clicks by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. We, we could get sidetracked with this, but I think I think we everyone involved in this podcast has has struggled a bit as as you know online media has gotten so click obsessed and like if you're not if if you know there's the mentality that's taken over is like if what you're publishing isn't getting the maximum number of viewers why or readers why are you doing it you know and it's it's you know those of us like doing nichier things uh, those of us that kind of grew up. You know, reading about entertainment because uh, the thrill of discovery and learning things that you didn't know about and kind of going down like strange um, side paths. Uh, I'm not sure the internet media right now is, is that hospitable to that. And I'm, and I'm always waiting for that to turn around. In the well, meantime, we're, we're trying to maintain it a, a little bit here. Yes, you know, exactly, we, we, exactly. we do it, you know, for as many superhero movies as we've done recently, <laughs> we do uh, do some forays into some more niche movies I, I, I think i think american movie qualifies sure right yeah, that's it yeah it's not a grabby and nobody's uh, talking about this fire <laughs> fest, these fire festival documentaries <laughs> um well, yeah. but uh but no it's it's um but you know and also this is we're, we're setting our own course so if anything happens to uh 
next picture show, we're going to be the ones to make that decision, <laughs> not somebody else. <laughs> um, so, uh, speaking of speaking of blockbusters and superhero <laughs> movies, yeah, uh, Genevieve, our next our next piece of feedback is very specific. <laughs> it's from a listener who wants to clarify one of the Spider People featured in Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Genevieve Dickinson writes. Hello, your friendly neighborhood internet pedant here. I just wanted to give a minor correction concerning Penny Parker's radioactive spider-bitten status. She indeed was bitten, as she very quickly explained during her origin story montage. The bite psychically linked her to the spider, which is partly what allows her to pilot the SPDR suit with such mastery, and also why the spider has to be the brains of the suit. In the scene where they all get the spidey sense, she clearly exhibits it. This is all in keeping with her comic's origins as an homage to the many giant robot anime shows. Dead father, secretly a robot piloting superhero, aunt and uncle, you know the ones, secretly scientists who built said robot, and now telling young orphan Penny she's the only one who can take the mantle as the robot can only be piloted by those with her family's genetics. Oh, but first please give your consent to let this radioactive spider bite you so you can form a psychic bond and also become best friends. All right, so that is the Penny Parker origin story. Uh, Keith, did you have any of that that n- background knowledge? Uh, no, I didn't actually. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I, I meant to go deeper into the Penny Parker stuff, but I haven't gotten around to it just yet. But that's uh, that's good. It's good to know. Yep, she yep. was, she yeah, was yeah, a fun. Some, some, good, some good information on on of all the of the whole gallery of spider people maybe the maybe the the least talked about but it's good uh, to know and maybe yeah. maybe future spider-verse movies we'll get into it more maybe i don't know do we think we're gonna get more spider-verse movies we were we were pretty bullish on on them when we recorded yeah, that but th- a little farther like, away I feel how like do we, we will because yeah. it was really great and it's winning all the it's winning lots of awards mm-hmm. it's it's been successful at the mm-hmm. box office and i think it's one of those things that people will continue to to embrace as they as they experience it because it's obviously pretty awesome yeah as evidenced by the fact that we're still getting feedback about it so (laughs) thank you dickinson for your pedantry we appreciate it (laughs) so we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations so we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll pack our bags and take a private jet to Pablo Escobar's private island for an exclusive look at the Netflix documentary, Fire. Look for that Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, suck down some peppermint schnapps and call Morocco at 2 in the morning. I don't-